Good morning, folks. Welcome once again to Chatham Community Church. Happy Easter. Uh, it's good to see y'all here. Uh, my name is uh, Jaime, and I am one of the pastors here, and I'm glad that you are deciding to spend part of your Easter with us, uh, whether this is your first time with us or your first time in a long time, or uh, we're just glad that you're here. I know some of you I spoke to, uh, you came here because uh, even though you normally go to the North Campus, their earliest service was a little bit too early for you. And uh, so I'm glad you chose to spend it with us. That's part of the reason why we have five services among two campuses, none of them starting at the same time. So uh, you can pick and choose which one uh, works best for your schedule today uh, and make sure you spend some time worshiping with a community of believers during Easter. So glad you are here. Uh, if this is your first time, I just want to invite you to fill out one of those uh, new here cards, that, those hello cards that we mentioned, and make sure you get one of our welcome gifts on your way out. It's just one of the many treats we have for you today. There's also a fantastic uh, array of goodies and treats out in the hospitality tent. And there's also going to be a space for y'all to take pictures as a family out there. So uh, make sure at the end of the service, you gather with your folks and go back there. And there's a spot in that tent for you to take pictures along with the inflatables for the kids to jump on and play with. And maybe some adults too. That's okay. You may not be able to get into the inflatable, but we have a sports one that you can throw balls at and, and, and you, can, you can enjoy uh, that one. And I hope you do. Um, Michael J. Fox was an iconic part of the 80s entertainment scene. Uh, those of us who grew up in the 80s or who were around the 80s may remember him uh, and, and his fame arising from shows such as Family Ties and movies like Teen Wolf, where apparently a werewolf, uh, being a werewolf gives you amazing basketball abilities. Uh, but many of us probably came to know Michael J. Fox through the Back to the Future movies uh, as he played the titular character Marty McFly. Uh, I was quite young when I saw the first movie, but there was something about the final scene of the first movie that I considered unique in my movie-watching experience at that time. Uh, the scene goes like this. Marty wakes up back in present time after having spent time in the 1950s uh, sort of interacting with his parents in their younger form. And whatever effect that interaction had, it seems to have turned out for the good as Marty wakes up in a house that is remarkably, remarkably better than it had been when he left. Uh, his siblings are in remarkably better conditions. His parents look better. Everything looks better. It looks like things are turning for good. It looks like this is a happy ending. Marty is reunited with his girlfriend, and as they appear, sort of headed to ride off in this souped-up pickup truck, you hear the familiar sound of the DeLorean time machine, and you hear a crash as the DeLorean crashes into some trash cans, and Marty's friend, Doc Brown, gets out, and he's wearing weird clothes, and he tells Marty that they have to go back, but back to the future, because now it's Marty's kids that are in trouble as they all pack together into the car and pull out into the driveway. Marty observes that the road doesn't seem long enough to get up to the speed that's needed to trigger the time travel mechanism in the machine because for some reason you need to get up to a particular speed to trigger tra time travel. But, 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 but as he says that, Doc Brown pulls down his shades and he says, where we're going, we don't need roads and the car lifts up and hovers and blasts off into the future. And then the credits roll. And even though it's the end of the movie, what you actually now know is how the next movie is going to start. 
See, sometimes what feels like the end is really the beginning of the next part of the story. Sometimes what feels like the end is really the beginning of the next part of the story. And Easter is kind of like that. For the last month and a half here at Chatham Community Church, we've been stepping into the story of Jesus. We've been following Jesus through the narratives as collected in the four accounts of his life at the start of the New Testament. And each week as we've stepped into the story, we've seen more and more of who Jesus is and the story he's telling not just for himself, but for all of humanity. It's a story that's marked by love, by redemption, and by lasting goodness. And that story feels like it's coming to a close as Jesus dies on the cross, as we talked about just a couple of days ago. And the passage we just read, when it starts, it has a feeling like it's it's an epilogue to the story, sort of an opportunity to bring some closure to these women who had been following Jesus as they go to tend to his body that's laid in the tomb, sort of a final goodbye. But then things change. And instead of an ending we actually get the next part of the Jesus story. And it's actually the story he's been telling all along. Now, you may or may not be familiar with the Easter story. And even if you are familiar with the Easter story, you may or may not be familiar with its significance, not just for all of humanity, but for you specifically. But you and I have a place in the Jesus story. And what happened on that very first Easter is a crucial part. It's a crucial part of the story of all of humanity. It's a crucial part of your story. It's a crucial part of my story. It's a crucial part of our story. So my invitation for all of us today is to consider that in stepping into the Easter story, today might be an opportunity for us to experience the beginning of the next part of our story. And this next part may be marked, if we do it with Jesus, by love, by hope, by peace, and by goodness. So step into the story today. The story starts out, like I said, with these women who'd been following along with Jesus. They were part of his band of followers, and they are making their way to the tomb where they had seen him laying. They are going to, they are going to give a final sort of honor to their rabbi. They're going to pay their respects. They're going to care for his body. Now, they weren't the only followers of Jesus who were in the area of Jerusalem at that time, but many of those followers were hiding away. Given the events of the last few days, the arrest, the trial, the execution, many of those followers are hiding, cowering in fear, hoping hoping that what befell Jesus does not befall them. Some may already have scattered outside of Jerusalem, hoping to get back to the lives that they left behind when they left Jesus. After all, things had not gone as they planned. Things had not gone on, not gone as they expected when they made their way into Jerusalem with Jesus just a week earlier. They were expecting that the culmination of their time with Jesus would be a crowning of a king, a restoration of the kingdom of Israel to its power, and they in favored places as those who had followed him early, but things had gone differently. It felt now that Jesus was dead like the story was over. This was not something that was going to be turned around. But the women stick around. The women stick around, and because they stick around, because they find their way to be close to Jesus on that morning, they get to experience the turning point in the story. 
they get to experience the turning point. Everyone experiences hard times, disorienting times, times where it feels like there are disappointments and struggles, times where it feels like there might not be any hope. I wonder if sometimes we walk away from the story too soon, if we give up on hope too early, if we turn our back to the trajectory we've been on too quickly and we miss, we miss the turning point. We miss the turning point. We miss the moment where things might change. The story felt like it was over. But even though it felt like, way, like that, even though all signs pointed to that, the wom- women stuck around. They weren't ready to quite give up on Jesus just yet. And that sense, that willingness to stick around, that unwillingness to give up on Jesus quite yet puts them in the position to experience the turning point in the story, the turning point that changes things not just for them, but for all of humanity. You may be going through a hard time today. You may be going through a hard season. You may be going through hard years. You may be struggling. And right now, the weight might feel heavy. It might feel overwhelming. The story might seem hopeless. In fact, for some of you, the story feels like maybe it's already over and we're just ticking off the days, maybe you've tried God out. And it feels like he hasn't come through in time. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't turn your back on the story because a turning point is coming. If Jesus' death was not the end of his story and not the end of the story of humanity, then you are nowhere near the end of yours. If a turning point came for him, then a turning point is coming for you as well. It's not too late for your turning point. Don't give up. Follow the example of the women who clung to their hope, who clung to Jesus, because staying connected to God's story positions us to experience the turning points for good that we need. You may be here feeling like you're desperate for a good turning point. The story has to change at some point. The story has to turn for better. It has been too much bad upon too much bad upon too much, too much misfortune upon too much misfortune. If you cling to God, a turning point is coming. A turning point is coming because God doesn't let evil or loss or pain or disappointment or grief or hopelessness or despair have the final word. He has a better word for you. And if your story feels like it's disappointing or hopeless or pain-filled or filled with loss and you have not clung to God, today's a great day to throw your arms up to God because there's a turning point for you as well. There is a turning point for you as well. If you stay connected to God, you will be positioned to experience the turning point for good that you desperately need, that you desperately need. I knew a man named Paul Su, S-I-U. He was a Chinese man who uh, spent many of his years in the New York area. He was deeply passionate about God, loved God, and he he dedicated most of his adult years to serving uh, churches and serving followers of Jesus in New York, around the country, and around the world, particularly where Chinese communities were. His story was filled with tough times. Given the places that he went, 
the nationality or the ethnicity that he was, and the way the Christian community is treated in his nation of origin. You might be able to imagine some of the hard times that he had to go through. And yet Paul pressed on with joy, with gladness. He stayed connected to Jesus. He never wavered in his commitment. A few years ago, he passed away suddenly, doing the thing he loved, talking about Jesus. And at his memorial service, they played a video like they do in many memorial services where they showed pictures. But among the pictures, someone had gathered recordings of talks he had given, speeches he had given, commencement addresses he had given. And throughout the video, they inserted clips of those words that he shared. And towards the end of the video, a familiar voice came and a familiar refrain started to be heard. It was the kind of thing he would say consistently where he would see, when he would see some of the people that he cared for discouraged or, or when it looked like they were going through a tough time and they became his final words to those, to those of us who loved him and cared for him. We heard his voice say, never give up. Never give up. We heard his voice resonate. He said, it's always too soon to quit. And his last words, hang on to Jesus when the going gets tough. Hang on to Jesus when the going gets tough. It's like he's echoing what we see the women do in this passage. The going had gotten tough. The rabbi had been killed. The leaders, the leaders under Jesus of the movement had, were, were, were not present at this moment, and they, yet they clung to Jesus. And because they clung to Jesus, they got to experience the turning point. My friend who are here, you who are here, and for me as well, don't give up. Don't turn your back. Don't let go. It is always too soon to quit. Hang on to Jesus when the going gets tough because your turning point is coming. The turning point in our story is coming. It comes for the women and it comes for all of humanity with an earthquake and the rolling away of a huge stone that covered the entrance of a tomb and the appearance of a celestial being, an angel, appears. Now the presence of the supernatural is in this moment. The power of God is manifest and evident. It is a stunning moment. And like many of these moments that are recorded in Scripture, it seems that the people who are witnessing it experience a sense of fear. There's something going on in them as they experience, as they witness this. Why? Why? Why do people consistently in the Scriptures, when something like this happened, experience fear? Well, I think it's because it's the presence of something so stunning. It's the presence of something so grand. It's the presence of something so powerful. It's the presence of something so good that when you find yourself in the presence of something so like that, so unlike anything other you've experienced in your life, one can't help but become aware of how unlike that one is. How unlike that majestic power, that majestic goodness, that stunning beauty, that majesty, how unlike that one is. And how can one remain in the presence of something so purely good, so powerful, so stunning? 
which is why the first words here and the first words later on when they appear Jesus are the words that consistently appear when people encounter the divine presence, when they encounter the supernatural power of God. The words are, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. The presence and power of God can feel overwhelming at times. We can feel inadequate at times, and yet the voice of God consistently speaks out in those moments. And it speaks particularly and especially to those who are seeking God, and it says, do not be afraid. And with that, do not be afraid, it is communicating you are welcome. Do not be afraid. You are welcome. Some of us may find ourselves in the presence of God or think about being in the presence of God and wonder, how could God receive me? And the voice from heaven resonates still and says, do not be afraid. You are welcome. We may wonder, what about all the stuff I've done? And the voice from heaven resonates still and says, do not be afraid. You are welcome. You may wonder, what if I don't believe enough? I don't think I believe enough. What about all these questions I have? And the voice from heaven still says, do not be afraid. You are welcome. You may have run away from the story. You may have turned your back on the story. You may have avoided the story. You may have mocked the story. You may have ridiculed the story. You may have doubted the story. You can still step into the story. The voice from heaven still says, do not be afraid. You are welcome. Do not be afraid. You are welcome. The angel then announces the turning point to them. It's the turning point for all of humanity, for all of creation, for all of time. You are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. This is the message that did, has, and will continue to change the world. He is not here. He is risen just as he said. Because if death was not the end of Jesus' story, there is always hope in our stories. Because if after being mangled, after being humiliated, after being tortured, after being mocked, after being scorned, after being crucified, after being killed, Jesus came back to life, then nothing done to us by others or nothing that we bring on ourselves makes us too far gone for life if we come to Jesus, if we decide to step into his story, into the story that we were created for. There is no part that may feel dead currently that the resurrection power cannot reach and bring back to life. Let me say that again. There is no part in us, whether it feels dead or dying, that is too far gone for God's resurrection power to bring life, to bring goodness, to bring joy. There's no part in you that is too far gone. The power of God can change the seemingly unchangeable. The power of God can write another chapter, even to stories that feel like they've concluded. Do you have stories that feel like they've concluded, like they're hopeless, you were wondering, you were longing for another chapter, and it feels like it's impossible. The power of God can write another chapter. This is the kind of story that's worth giving your life to. The women know this, and yet the angel doesn't, doesn't just let them 
take his word for it. He gives them a second word. He says, come and see. Come and see, and he, he invites them to come into the tomb. Come and see the place where he lay. He invites them to explore, to examine, to confirm so that the belief that they have is even stronger. They may have not needed it at that time, but he gave it anyway. And this might not be the specific invitation that we can receive. None of us might be able to go back to the first century. We don't have a DeLorean like in Back to the Future. We may not be able to go back to the first century and see the empty tomb, but the essence of that come and see invitation is still true for us as well. We are invited to explore. We are invited to examine. We are invited to engage. We are invited to ask questions. If this story is worth giving your life to, it must stand up to scrutiny. It must stand up to question. It must stand up to curiosity. It must stand up to exploration. And it does. And it does. And it does. There was a man I knew a few years ago. He was, I would call him, faith-adjacent. He was connected to our faith community. Uh, he would attend things. He would participate. But it was obvious to all of us, and he would say so as well, that belief was not his thing. He was on the fence about Jesus. I met with him. I listened to his story. I asked him what it would take for him to come off the fence. And once he told me, I extended sort of a come and see invitation to him for two aspects that he was curious about or that he was wondering about. I said, come explore these things. Come and ask your questions. Engage your curiosity. And he took me up on it. He came and saw. And within two months, he had come off the fence and had become a follower of Jesus. He had decided to step into the story. Some of us are here and we've been on the fence for years. Part of the reason we've been on the fence and haven't come off it is because we've not identified what we need to come and see, and we've not engaged in the invitation. So there where you are, my encouragement to you is to come and see, to explore, to ask your questions, to bring your doubts, to bring your concerns, to engage in exploration, because I am confident that the story that's worth giving my life to, the story that's been worth giving our lives to, the story that, that, that millions upon millions, perhaps billions of people throughout history have given their life to, stands up to scrutiny. It stands up to questions. It stands up to curiosity. It has to deliver. Otherwise, what's the point? What's the point? What would it look like for you to come and see? Engage in it in these next few weeks. As the women leave the tomb to embark on the next part of their story, going to do what the angel had told them to report back what has happened, something amazing happens. As they go on their way, Jesus appears to them. They run into Jesus. And though we are not likely to encounter the bodily form of Jesus as we go and follow Jesus, I've consistently found that what was true for them remains true for us, and that is that we meet Jesus as we take steps into his story. We meet Jesus as we take steps into his story. More and more of who Jesus is becomes apparent 
to us. We experience more and more of his presence. We experience more and more of his grace. We experience more and more of his truth. We experience more and more of his love the more and more we step into his story. I've been at this for 20 years. I know people and I've known people who've been at it decades longer than I have. And one thing we all have in common is that the more we step into the story, the more and more we've grown and the deeper we've gone in our knowledge of Jesus, our encounters with him, our sense of his presence, greater intimacy. There's always more to be had with Jesus. There's always more of the story to step into. There's always deeper to go. We meet Jesus when we take steps into his story. You may feel like you need to meet Jesus like you're longing to meet Jesus, like you would love to have an encounter with Jesus. Step into his story. Step into his story. He delivers. He shows up. He shows up. The response of many to meeting Jesus has been much like the response of the women when they see Jesus. They fall at his feet and they worship. Because what we've consistently found is the more we step into the Jesus story, the more we realize that he is worthy of being at the center of ours. And that's essentially what worship is. It's the the acknowledgement and the alignment of all our lives to this idea that Jesus is worthy of being the center of our story. Jesus is worthy of being the center of our story. So it gets expressed in a variety of ways. The core of it is the same. Jesus is at the center, and he is worthy. All of us are telling a story with our lives, not just with what we say, but with how we live. Take a moment and consider what's at the center of your story, or who's at the center of your story. It may be something, it may be someone, it may be yourself. You may be at the center of your story. I was at the center of mine for a long time. Some of those things might be good. They might be valuable. As you identify what's at the center of the story, my question for you is, is does the thing at the center of your story have resurrection power? Because if it doesn't, then there's something better. There's something better something more worthy to be at the center. Jesus is worthy to be at the center. And the more we step into his story, the more that gets confirmed, the more we realize it. The more we realize it. The women go and tell what they've seen and heard. That is the charge that they received from Jesus. And that's the charge that they received from the angels. They were the first to tell the story. It was like the first domino fallen because from then on for 2,000 years, people have consistently, they've consistently come and seen and gone and told. What they've seen, what they've heard, what they've experienced, you and I are here because someone went and told. Some of us are here this morning because someone went and told us. Some of us have brought people here because we went and told or we know people at other churches that are there because we went and told. But the women aren't the only ones who go and tell. Some of the guards go and tell. They go and tell the chief priests what had happened, and then two things happen when they go and tell the chief priests. The first is that the chief priests refuse to embrace the story. They refuse to embrace the story that they've been told, and in fact, they conspire to squash it. And the second thing that happens is that the soldiers agree 
to change their story. They agree to rewrite what they saw and what they heard. Why? Why would anyone try to squash this story or change the version of events that they experienced? Well, for the chief priests, part of it is that they had already gone all in with this idea that Jesus was not the Messiah, that he was a threat to order, to peace, to Jewish life. They had committed themselves so much to that that they had conspired to kill him. And admitting that he had risen from the dead would mean admitting that they were wrong. And perhaps that felt too costly. Perhaps they had already put so many chips into the Jesus is not the Messiah bank that it felt like they had too much to lose to admit that he rose from the dead. Perhaps they believed that the cost to change course was too high. For the guards, it's that they had already failed at their duty. Word would get around that the task that they had been given to guard the tomb, to make sure nothing happened, to make sure that the body remained, they had failed at it. They wouldn't get jobs. In fact, their lives would be at stake. They'd need money to cover the loss of income, and they'd need the protection of people in authority if anyone came after them. And we're all susceptible to, to these two things. Each one of us is. We all have pressure points that when pressed can cause us to change our story away from the true story into a more convenient one. And we can all become so committed to a particular belief that even when presented with compelling evidence that that belief is wrong, that compelling evidence to change course, we can choose to dig our heels and actually double down and refuse to change course. The guards and the priests committed to a different story, and that had consequences. That had consequences. Can you imagine what first century Jerusalem would have been like if the only story told about, happened, about what happened on that day was the true story? Can you imagine the repercussions throughout the world if the consistent message was that everyone who was present at the tomb confirmed whether they were Jewish or not, whether they were one of Jesus' followers or not, they all said the tomb was empty because Jesus rose from the dead. The world would be different. They didn't know it then, but their decision to change the story has had repercussions, not just in their local time, but throughout history. Who knows what would be different? This year marks the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreements. For those of you who aren't familiar, the Good Friday Agreements brought an end to the time in Northern Ireland known as the Troubles, where the conflicts between folks who wanted to stay connected to the UK and the folks that wanted Northern Ireland to become part of Greater Ireland, the conflicts between Protestants and Catholics led to thousands and thousands of deaths. And 25 years ago, an accord was signed that brought the end to those conflicts, that brought a growing peace in Northern Ireland. The stakes were high as folks in power gathered to hash out the Good Friday Agreement in the weeks leading up to it. There were people from all sorts of different uh, uh, participating interests at the table trying to negotiate a peace that, had, that they had been unable to negotiate for years prior. Various groups from the UK and Ireland and even an envoy from the US were there trying to help the talks 
come along. They were trying to hammer out peace. There was also hope in Ireland, and people were gathering outside the place where the talks were happening, and the talks came close to breaking down at multiple points. And the people at the table were tempted to walk away at multiple points. They were tempted to continue telling a story that was marked by conflict, by division, a a story that said we can never be united, a story that said we must continue to fight in this particular way, lives must continue to be lost, a story that was marked by fear and violence. Many factors helped them stay at the table. Later on, a politician commented on one of them. He said that as they were gathered negotiating, as tensions were high, they heard from the outside singing. Singing was coming in from the outside. See, buses of of, of school children from Catholic schools and Protestant schools had come in and a local folk singer was playing a song and the kids had gathered together, Catholics and Protestants, mingling together, singing a song that expressed their hope, their desires, their dreams for what could be. And the politicians heard the singing. And what a number of them thought as they heard the singing was the future. That's the future calling to us. See, in that moment, they realized that the decisions they made of the story they were going to tell wasn't just about them and their interests and their power and their concerns. The story they decided to tell on that day would have repercussions for those around them for generations to come. And they decided for peace. They remembered that the story they chose to step into was not just about them. Friends, the story we tell with our lives matters. But it doesn't just matter for our state, for our sake. The story we tell with our words and with our lives has ripple effects beyond us. Has ripple effects beyond us, and it has ripple effects even for generations. The story you're telling with your life right now, the story you decide to tell in the days, weeks, and years to come isn't just about you. It affects those around you. It will have an impact on generations. And the story we tell starts with the decision of whose story we'll step into and who will be at the center. So which story will you step into? Which story will you step into today? Or which story will you stay in? Here's my invitation. should come as no surprise. My invitation is to step into the Jesus story. Step into the Jesus story because if you do, Your life will be marked by hope, by love, by goodness, by redemption, by so much more. And that's a story worth telling. That's a story that the people around us need to hear. That's a story that we need to experience. This is a story worth stepping into.